It sounds strange these days, but he found a tooth from a dead soldier and he had it implanted in his own mouth. He was so proud of the victory that he wanted a he wanted a little bit of the Waterloo victory with him. And so he had a dentist stick it in his own mouth. It sounds bizarre, but it actually happened. And he was he made no secret of it. He was very proud of it. with Rolf Potts. Today's Vagabonding Audio Companion episode focuses on souvenirs and how they've been a part of the travel experience for thousands of years. This is a remix of two podcasts that tied into my 2018 book, Souvenir. The first, an ABC Radio Australia broadcast hosted by Suzanne Hill, and the second, a chat with radio host Gina Kaufman, who's been interviewing me for Kansas City's KCUR since my earliest vagabonding days two decades ago. Note that there isn't a formal transition between the two interviews. You'll just hear my chat with Suzanne pivot to my chat with Gina about two-thirds of the way through. Along the way, we discuss how the ancient Egyptians and Romans collected souvenirs and how souvenirs have always been central to the historical rites of pilgrimage. We talk about why tourists tend to fixate on souvenirs like shot glasses and snow globes and performance masks. We talk about how souvenirs have become a global mass market and what it means when an American goes to Egypt and buys a souvenir that was manufactured in China. I tell a few of my own souvenir stories, like the clamshell I found on a beach in Chicago when I was a kid, and how its meaning has changed for me over the years. The episode starts with Suzanne and I talking about how souvenirs can be more than tacky kitsch objects. Let's listen in. Now, you've written a whole book on souvenirs. What is it about the souvenir that you think is so fascinating? I just think it's interesting, even even the stories you were talking about, how your attitudes towards souvenirs changed over the years, that there's sort of ways that we narrate ourselves, especially when we travel. It's a way to sort of slow down time and remember a place and sort of tell a story about ourselves that we can bring home with us and, and show to other people or just sort of reflect and look at ourselves. And our attitudes towards souvenirs change over the course of a lifetime, and that's part of what makes them interesting. So what? how have your own attitudes towards souvenirs changed over your lifetime? Give us a sort of history of your souvenir buying. Well, I'm a little bit like you, and I think most travelers are this way, is that when I was an, a young traveler without much experience, I bought souvenirs all the time because I was excited about travel, and those souvenirs sort of certified the fact that I was going to a place, be it Chicago when I was a little boy or you know Australia when I was older from the United States. Uh, but the more you travel, the, the more travel becomes normal, uh, the less you end up buying those cheap chintzy souvenirs that say Australia on the side. And the more you become more of a, a connoisseur of souvenirs. And then also there's other kinds of souvenirs like the rocks that you pick up on the beach or the empty wine bottle from that nice evening you had in Paris. And so I think the more I thought about souvenirs, the more I realized that what can be considered a, a souvenir is a very broad definition. Uh, and as you implied, it's one that goes back thousands of years. So, Rolf, have you got a, a personal favorite or a really good story around a souvenir that you could tell us? Well, I do. And, uh, you know, I think... Oftentimes, the souvenirs that are the most memorable aren't the ones that you buy in a gift shop, but are the ones that you keep from an experience that you really, really remember and makes a big effect on you. Uh, so when I was about 28 years old, I bought a fishing boat from a Laotian fisherman in Laos and drove it about 800 miles down the Mekong. And um, I kept breaking the riverboat propellers because I kept buying aluminum ones when I should have been buying steel ones. And so I kept one of those broken propellers and it reminds me of this crazy 
adventure down the Mekong uh, when I was young and maybe not too smart. I probably shouldn't have been um, driving a boat with no experience down the 12th longest river in the world. Um, and so every time I look at that, I think of a much younger version of myself and an adventure that I'll probably never do again. And, and where do you keep it? I've actually screwed it. I can see it right now. I've screwed it into my wall in my office. It's above some some Burmese uh, marionette heads. Uh, and so it's different. You know, all the souvenirs are mixed in together. I have su- some souvenirs from when I was a little boy, some that belonged to my grandparents, and then some that I've bought or picked up in various parts of the world. Fantastic. Rob, can I just tell you a story about one of mine? Because I'm, I'm dying to. Because this is just a, a souvenir that I had a bit of an adventure with. Because I went to Africa and I bought, I don't know, are you familiar with the Malawi chair? Which is sort of two pieces of wood and the, the back part is, and they, they slot into each other and create a chair and the back part is sort of exquisitely carved. And everyone who goes to Malawi ends up wanting a Malawi chair. And so we we're on our way back through um, heading to Tanzania and I finally, I got two chairs. Oh, they're like maybe seven or eight kilos each. They are super awkward. They're like a, a metre long and 40 centimetres sort of wide. And I was sort of carrying one under each arm, struggling with a massive backpack on my head. Head, and we were getting to the border uh, with Tanzania. Unbeknownst to us, Tanzania was on a different time. We thought we were going to make it to the border uh, with an hour to spare and realised it was five minutes until the border shut. We had to run a kilometre across a bridge and I've wow. got these two massive chairs. And right at the moment where I'm sort of trying to power walk across, this uh, African guy just ran up to me and he went, you give me a dollar for each, I'll carry them across for you. And I happened to have two US dollars and I just flung them at him and he grabbed my two chairs, he put them on his head and he literally sprinted across the border, leaving me thinking, am I going to see my chairs again? But I did. And so every time I look at that chair, I'm taken back to that bridge and this guy just sprinting over the bridge with them. So that's, that's what makes it special. Yeah, no, I, it, it has drama, right? Your, your most memorable souvenir has drama. It also sounds like it could be a fitness plan, you know, the Malawi <laughs> chair workout. Absolutely. So look, a souvenir is simply a trophy for bragging rights, but for some people, I mean, people, I imagine lots of people see them in quite different ways. They can be for bragging rights, you know, but travel has changed over the years. More people can travel than could travel 100 years ago, for example. And now if you really wanted to show off your travels, you just put an Instagram filter on yourself standing on the Great Wall of China or on the Amazon River or something. And that's more of a show-offy thing than this more abstract souvenir that you have. And so I think there was a time in history when sort of wealthy travelers would come and say, oh, well, this is my Milanese China and aren't I sophisticated? You know, or a middle-class traveler um, would come and, and show their special plate that says Milan on it, and they could uh, let their neighbors know that they were more sophisticated. Uh, but now that we're, we live in this information environment, it feels like souvenirs more than ever, and I think they've always been this way a little bit, are sort of this story we tell to ourselves. Uh, and so when we come home, we can sort of quietly look at that Malawi chair or that Christmas ornament and think to ourselves of a, a different time in our lives or when we were a younger person or another part of the world where we had a meaningful experience. And so I think they've become less of a status object over the years. Now, Rolf, in your book, you talk about five different types of souvenirs having been identified by academics in this field of study. I love that presumably there's more than just you who are studying souvenirs. Uh, but what, what are these uh, five different types of souvenirs? Yeah, it's interesting uh, that they've they've categorized them in such a way. There's there's piece of the rock souvenirs, which are just things that you pick up. 
Uh, and those are the oldest souvenirs you have, just uh, something that you keep from an experience to remember it later. There's also local products, which is pretty simple. You know, it's the bottle of wine that you buy in Italy, um, or it is the, the block of cheese that, that you buy in the Netherlands. Then there's also a pictorial images, which are like post, posters and postcards and, um, and photographs. And markers, which are the T-shirts and mugs with the with the little uh, thing on on the front that says New York City, right? So they they literally mark the place you're from. And the fifth and final one is symbolic shorthand, which are miniatures, um, like the the miniature Colosseum that you get, or the miniature um, you know Eiffel Tower that you get in Paris. And those are actually quite old. Roman tourists a couple thousand years ago uh, bought and sold um, miniatures or symbolic shorthand in their own tourist destinations. They did really. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, in fact, you couldn't get your picture taken, but you could get your a little a little um, cameo portrait of yourself made in these tourist attractions two thousand years ago. So it's a very old ritual. Isn't that amazing? So, I mean, I was just going to ask how far the human habit goes back. Is that? I mean, is Rome where it, it begins, or does it go back further than that? Well. I suspect that it goes back as far as a hunter-gatherer crossed into the next valley and found a rock that he or she found was thought was cool and brought home. Uh, but some of the earliest, one of the earliest tourist industries was back in Rome uh, when they would sell glass vials or little silver miniatures at Roman tourist destinations. That was 2,000 years ago. But uh, the, the Egyptians, as far back as 2200 BC, um, left inscriptions about things they got, for example, when they went to Sudan, like uh, tusks or incense or ebony. And so it feels like as long as humans had been keep, keeping track of things, They've been buying souvenirs for their friends. In fact, in 1800 BC, in Mesopotamia, they found a letter from a son to his father who said, please give me some beads. When you travel to this other city, I want beads I can put on my head. And so it's funny that even back then, children were impetuous and they wanted certain souvenirs from places where their parents traveled. So it's a very, very old ritual. And do we think the tacky souvenirs, actually, the, the, the things you talked about in ancient Rome were actually just the millennial version of tacky souvenirs? Yes, um, because they're cheap uh, and there's an industry that caters to them. In fact, in Jerusalem, they would sell little vials that you could put like water from the Jordan River in. And there were so many tourists there in the Middle Ages that they would buy the, it was cheaper to buy those little clay pots from Alexandria. They had, they had a, like an industry, an import industry that would bring in these vials to hold the water from the Holy Jordan. And so I can talk more about modern tacky souvenirs, but a version of tacky souvenirs has been happening for almost as long as there's been a pilgrimage or tourist industry. I guess too, the thing is that as, for example, ancient Greece and ancient Rome fell into ruin, a lot of those old stones that made up all those great old buildings became souvenir items of their own, didn't they? They absolutely did, and in fact, um, during the age of the Grand Tour in the in the um, the eighteenth and nineteenth century, when rich men from Great Britain would go across Europe, they were so fascinated by this old Greek pottery that local Greek people would make fake versions to sell to the Brits. Um, it's like, well, if you want if you want an ancient pottery that if it makes you feel better about coming here, I'll make one for you. And so they would make vases and smash them, and the Brits love them. Well, considering everything that the brutes took during that that particular age, I hope some Greeks well and truly ripped some of them off. Such a terrible thing to say. <laughs> right. Well, it happened all the time, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you talk about dark souvenirs that were, were brought back to Western Europe during the sort of age of colonialism and particularly during the 18th and 19th century. So, so what do you mean about dark souvenirs? 
Well, Dark Souvenirs is, is, covers pretty, pretty big ground, and I don't want to pick on the Brits too much. It's just that they kept a very good record of, of the strange things that they did. For example, if a man was hung in England in the 18th or the 19th century, oftentimes they would, uh, a crowd of a couple thousand people would come to see the hanging, and people would bid to buy for bits of the rope. And there was a, um, a news story in the newspaper one time, and they were scandalized not by the fact that they were selling the rope, but by the fact that they thought maybe the, the hanger was selling bits of a rope to make extra money that was not used in the hanging. So that's one sort of dark souvenir that they have. But then there's also basically, you know, during the age of empire, plunder is brought back um, as souvenirs. And we might think of it as sort of a tacky tourist thing or as an, an uncultured person's uh, iteration of traveling to the far side of the world and and um, being rude, but actually many museums, including the British Museum, were founded on items that are sometimes of scientific interest, but oftentimes were taken without permission from faraway lands. Um, and I think now we're in a historical moment when many of these museums find themselves compelled to give some of these items back because they were never negotiated with permission to begin with. I mean, that's where I guess the Elgin marbles uh, fit in. And in fact, we're doing a story tomorrow night looking at the, the Boxer Uprising in, in China when a whole uh, eight-nation army went in and, and plundered Beijing and made off with all sorts of things that they then sort of happily auctioned off and on some of which I understand are in museums in Australia and around the world today. So I'd be fascinated to see when the museums all dug out their collections, just how many had got there um, that yeah. way. Now, the 18th century diarist Henry Crabb Robinson had an interesting obsession with the English victory at the Battle of Waterloo. What sort of souvenir did he seek and what did he do with it? Now, this is one of the more macabre souvenirs. I guess it was Peace of the Rock. It's something he picked up off the battlefield at Waterloo, which is a very proud victory for the Brits. And um, it, it sounds strange these days, but he found a tooth from a dead soldier and he had it implanted in his own mouth. He was so proud of the victory that he wanted a, he wanted a little bit of the Waterloo victory with him. And so he had a dentist stick it in his own mouth. It sounds bizarre, but it actually happened. And he was, he made no secret of it. He was very proud of it. Oh my goodness. And dentistry was that advanced back then that he could do this. I'm surprised by that too. Well, I suspect it wasn't. I, I suspect it wasn't the best little <laughs> fake tooth crown. I, I suspect he may have regretted it when he ate particularly uh, tough meat dishes. But um, <laughs> at the time, in the flush of victory, it's something he decided to do. Now, uh, tell me about Keats and his connection with Milton and how this all fits into our conversation about tourism and souvenirs. Well, this sort of the backstory is that, you know, souvenir industry in Europe sort of started with the pilgrimage to holy places where people buy, would buy things. But as the Renaissance happened and people began to venerate um, poets of old, they began to look for relics from these famous personages. And in fact, um, the American presidents before they were presidents, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, when they went to Shakespeare's house in the 18th century, they carved, they took out their knives and carved off bits of his chair as souvenirs. So there's some weirdness that happened back then. But uh, in this particular case, I think Kitts Keats collected a lock of Milton's hair, which doesn't sound too weird until you realize that Milton had been dead for over 100 years and that basically his, his tomb had been looted when they were renovating the church and uh, his hair and even his teeth were making their way around England for people who, who venerated his poetry. And so it, it's just very strange that Keats, in fact, Keats wrote a poem about uh, upon seeing a lock of Milton's hair. Um, I guess it, it made them 
feel like they were in touch with great art, just like a, a Christian pilgrim might get a, a fistful of dirt from the from the Church of the Ascension in Jerusalem to feel like he had a connection with Jesus. Uh, someone like Keats might feel a connection to Milton by looking at or keeping a lock of his hair from a tomb that had been plundered. So the, the craze for the parts of bodies of great personages, uh, was it just, I mean, souvenir hunting? Do you think it was something more profound? I think it was just this idea that, I mean, it's different than buying the, the chintzy souvenirs of today. I think it was this idea that you're connected with a, with a greater person, with a greater world of art. And it's, I guess it's a fad that we don't, we no longer feel, right? You know, like now we have Instagram influencers and maybe that influences the way, what we look for when we go to foreign lands. But at the time, it felt like there was this spectral connection between the great artists of old and seeing a part of their body or a lock of their hair or going to their tomb, which is something we still do. You know, I've been, people still visit uh, the, the tomb of Shakespeare and I've been to the, to the grave of Walt Whitman in the United States or Jack Kerouac. Um, and so it's just this feeling that you're in the presence of this person who is gone, but they've touched you with their art. And somehow that's important or was important, especially uh, during this enlightenment age for travelers in Britain and sometimes the United States. So for everyone else who went on the, the grand tour, um, you know, which wealthy Europeans did in the 18th and 19th centuries, what sorts of things would they collect? Oh, they collected all sorts of things. Oftentimes, things like art. You know, they would go to Italy and collect art. In fact, they would have famous Italian painters paint pictures of them, you know, instead of getting a photo, this is well before the era of photos, they would have one of the great Italian masters paint a picture of them. Um some British tourists brought back as many as 800 trunks of junk. I, I call it junk, but, you know, of keepsakes from various parts of Europe, basically to, to um, you know, furnish their English manor. So it was sort of a, a combination of buying souvenirs and buying furniture or paintings from other sides of the world. Um, but there are, there are, I think, Lord... Lord Crabtree, I think his name was, uh, told his son not to travel knickknackically. It was such a craze among grad, grand tourists to buy things, to basically go shopping, which is something that tourists still do. You know, faced with an unfamiliar place, we comfort ourselves by going shopping and going to the, the souvenir stand. But he said not to travel knickknackically, not to focus on the souvenirs of the trip, to focus on the experiences of the trip. And so there's a whole wealth of, of grand tour literature about the things that these young, mostly men from Britain would buy as they traveled. Well, I was just thinking too, every city that the souvenir sellers all seem to get together and decide this is what our city represents. So you, you just be shop after shop after shop will have exactly the same thing or a slight variation of all around whatever themes they've decided represent their city, won't they, when you, it comes to that sort of cheap, tacky market. Do you reckon they all get together and just go, look, it's all about, you know, the Charles Bridge in Prague and, you know, <laughs> we're going to mass order two million replicas of it this year? Well, it's funny that you asked that because I actually interviewed a souvenir vendor in Paris um, and like 80% of her store was Eiffel Tower themed, right? Even if it was a plate, it had a picture of an Eiffel Tower on it. And there's this idea that the souvenir vendors are getting together and making this decision. But when I asked her, she said, look, you know, if I, I tried to sell other things, but tourists didn't want them. Uh, and so this was a store in Room of Tar, which if you know Paris is like an hour's walk from the Eiffel Tower. Um, it, basically, there are much more Hemingway stayed there, Orwell stayed there. There are more famous things in that neighborhood than the Eiffel Tower. But this woman almost exasperatedly said, look, you Americans or Australians or people from China come and they want 
pictures of Eiffel Tower, little miniature Eiffel Towers. I sell you what you ask for. And so I really, I think that happens almost anywhere in the world. I think people want a little a little signifier that they've been to this far part of the world. And I think like an Eiffel Tower, when it's sitting on your on your nightstand in Iowa, your guests can come and say, oh, that's from Paris, uh, unlike a souvenir that might be more ambiguous. That um, symbolic shorthand immediately identifies where you've been. So, uh, Rolf, what's your take on the main sorts of objects that people most want, most desire these days? Well, it's funny. I went to a, a souvenir vendors convention in Las Vegas where basically... Um, souvenir vendors will go and talk to people from national parks and various gift shops from all over the United States. And the vendors told me that it's almost like the Paris situation, that despite all of the innovative souvenirs that we design for tourists, he said, um, people want small stuff. They want things that are small, easy to pack, and that are eye-catching and portable and cheap and durable, um, sometimes with humor or novelty. And so despite all of the, the innovative ways that we have to invent souvenirs, he said, people just want small, cheap stuff. You know, shot glasses are actually more popular oftentimes than locally made art because that's what people like to uh, buy and collect. And obviously you can fit it in the the suitcases as well. So, I mean, Mm. people could probably go online and order a Chinese-made Eiffel Tower and have it sent to their home in Queensland, never having actually seen the original. What, What does that say about the power that we ascribe to objects? Well, I think it shows how in, in this postmodern moment, it's it's sort of a different kind of power. And I write in the book about how we talk about authenticity. Obviously, a um, you know a, a souvenir that is made in China that you buy in a place like uh, Paris or Queensland is not necessarily authentic. But oftentimes, the authenticity is something that the traveler feels in themselves. And so uh, even if a traveler is not traveling, if they're back in Queensland and they just want that shot glass from Patagonia, for example, and they buy it from a factory in China, it sort of completes a collection of their own. And so I think oftentimes the authenticity dialogues we ascribe to travel are more idealistic than travelers actually use in real life. In truth, we don't really want to find the most authentic piece of Papuan art when we go to Papua New Guinea. We just want to feel like we've been there and we want to feel like we're sort of creating a story of our own lives that is connected to travel. Now, I've got a couple of people SMSing in saying, look, are all these souvenirs made in China? Rob, can you tell us much about, is the sort of mass production of these cheap souvenirs largely based in China or is that a sort of a, a misconception? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. I, uh, I tried to be as skeptical as possible, but actually at the, at the, in the Las Vegas uh, vendors convention, the vendors said, yeah, we have to start our orders now because we have to send the orders to the factories in China. Basically, the, the Chinese just got good at mass producing souvenirs. 100 years ago, it was Germany. 120 years ago, the German silversmiths were great at making little knick-knacky things that they sold. And so it's really, it's, it's added to this postmodern moment that uh, you go to a gift shop in Egypt, I talk to vendors in Egypt and they buy their stuff from China. I talk to people in Paris, they buy their stuff from China and so do the people at the Vegas convention. And so it's really this abstracted sense. This sort of shifted in the 19th century when uh, basically the souvenir industry exploded. You had the, the, the Chicago Fair in 1890 and the Paris World's Fair in 1889. And that's when they start, literally they started to introduce things like collectible souvenir spoons or souvenir thimbles or even snow globes, as we call them in the United States, that were made specifically, made not locally, but made specifically to make the tourist feel like they had 
been to a place and could certify it with this souvenir spoon. And in fact, the fad for souvenir sp- spoons in the 18th century was sort of fanned by the silversmiths because of course they would like a souvenir spoon f- fad because they're selling souvenir spoons. And so it's interesting how the souvenir industry really has had a hand in what people buy. And now that industry, the manufacturing side at least, is very much based in China. Now, Julian Perth says, how much is known of the travels of non-Europeans, e.g. people from Africa and Asia to other parts of the world, and and what did they souvenir? I suspect that they buy some of the same things. You know, um, I studied the the pilgrimage tradition, and if you look at the the Hindu pilgrims who went to places like Varanasi or the Muslim pilgrims who went to places like Mecca, they have pretty much the same thing. They they bought, and this is, we're talking a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, they would buy miniatures, for example, or they would buy in Mecca specifically, they would buy little clay pots where they could bring water from the spring to take home and remember them with. And I think it's the same way when you have travelers from Africa or South America or places in Asia, um, they buy similarly mass produced souvenirs. I don't know if there's a culturally specific way that, people travel. Although as far as non-Western cultures go, the Japanese have a tradition they call omiyage, where their souvenir tradition is much less individualistic. Instead of buying a souvenir to sort of certify themselves, they buy souvenirs almost as an apology for the community that they leave behind. And so when they go home, they will present very formalized souvenirs, be it from a trip up country or a trip around the world to Paris, and they'll give them to their friends almost as an act of obligation. So yes, there are some culturally specific ways in which people buy souvenirs. Souvenirs. Though I think at the end of the day, regardless of where you're from, these days, numerically, people are just buying those cheap souvenirs. And it's it's tacky, I know, but it's sort of fun, I think, for people. So, Rolf, you've been to Australia, and I know that was, I think, when you were uh, in your earlier days of traveling, when you perhaps bought souvenirs differently to what you do today. But what sorts of things appealed to you at the time that you came? Well, I I bought some Aboriginal art myself, um, and I was in Central Australia, so sometimes I bought the art from the artists. Actually, when I went to Central Australia, I bought some Australian art, but I also, I just sort of felt like I needed to certify my trip to Australia. And I just felt this need, much like uh, Australian tourists in the United States might buy a sign that says Route 66 or some sort of um, James Dean paraphernalia, I just needed to buy a boomerang. So I bought a cheap boomerang in Central Australia and it's hanging on my wall right now. Um, and I think it just certifies, again, it's like buying an Eiffel Tower in in Paris. You know, it's just, I needed that to certify the fact that I had been there. And also I was traveling at a time when I just bought a house in the United States. I was young enough that um, it was very novel to own my own home. And I, when I saw that boomerang, I didn't just see the boomerang. I saw the fact that I had a wall to hang it on, and I was very proud of that. So I think sometimes our motivations are mixed up. You know, that I was, I sort of had an interest in Aboriginal art traditions. I talked to Aboriginal artists and really enjoyed buying those. But I bought the chintziest uh, boomerang souvenir, and it wasn't even authentic. It, it was probably made in China. I'm sorry. But um, it's hanging on my wall now because it reminds me of that trip when I was young enough to have just first owned a home. Now, I, I love this, uh, this SMS who says, I don't buy any souvenir made in China simply because I'd rather buy something authentic from a local person. And warning to the wise, never buy typical Bali tourist clothes, thinking that you'll look cool when you come back home. You won't. You're more likely to be barred from the local pub and scare dogs and small children. And, and Rolf, I wanted to ask you about this because this is a trap I've fallen into a number of times. And I call these particular items of clothing 
a Vietnamese straw hat because I went to Vietnam and I, you know, the straw hat that everyone's sort of, the, the locals are, are literally, I think, are wearing as they're picking rice. And you think, oh yeah, I'll buy that. And you wear it around Vietnam, even though you, I don't know why you do it. And then you get home and you just go, what was I thinking? Because I'm literally never going to wear this, am I? Do you, have you ever fallen into that trap? Not a lot. I, I think that I was I was chastened, like like Australians do. My my earliest travels overseas were months or years at a time. I just didn't have didn't have the room to pack a lot of horrible things. But I do know that that's almost a, a cliche in India, for example, that uh, Western travelers will go to India and they'll see how lovely Indian women look in saris. And women travelers in particular will buy a sari and they'll go home and it just doesn't look as good on, you know, on Western women. And, and so, sure, yeah, I think sometimes you get caught up in the romance of travel. You're in a place where everybody's wearing those conical Vietnamese peasant hats. And then you come home and you just look ridiculous. And so, um, yeah, again, it goes back to the idea that we sort of narrate ourselves. We're trying to create a story about ourselves that we can authenticate when we get home. And sometimes that story makes us look a little bit foolish. <laughs> Did you manage to put a dollar figure on what the tacky souvenir or just the souvenir industry is worth worldwide, Rolf? I did when I was when I was in Vegas researching things. It's about a nineteen billion dollar a year industry, and that includes gifts that maybe sometimes aren't necessarily considered travel souvenirs. Nineteen billion dollars a year—that's actually down from the nineteen nineties. Um, that internet retailing has actually made destination specific souvenirs less common than it used to be, though not a lot less common. I mean, nineteen billion U.S. dollars a year is quite a bit of money. Um, Rolf, as, as we wrap up the conversation, is there a souvenir that you have in mind, you know, somewhere you're, you're hoping to go one day in the future and something you would really like to have? Well, it's funny, you know, my dream for years has been to go to Australia, but I doubt that there's a, a souvenir industry in Australia. Uh, and uh, as far as piece of the rock, I doubt I can chop, chop off a piece of ice to, to take home with me. Um, so uh, that might be a situation where I just pick something up that might, uh, you know, be interesting, maybe a rock or, a you know, an old piece of machinery. Um, so that wasn't, you so said Australia, but did you mean Antarctica? I'm sorry. Yeah, Antarctica. Exactly. So, sorry. I must have Australia on the mind. Yeah, Antarctica. Um, yeah, so there's no specific type of souvenir that I want. There's just destinations that I want to go to. But again, when we travel these places, we like bringing home things that remind us of things. So yes, when I go to Antarctica, not Australia, um, I might just, it might be a rock that reminds me of this uh, far-flung part of the earth. Let's go back to your story. I mean, you grew up in South Central Kansas and your first souvenir was from a trip to Chicago. It was what you thought was a seashell. Correct. You know, I, I, I think I was seven years old and I saw Lake Michigan. And unlike the reservoirs in Kansas, I couldn't see the other side and it felt like an ocean. And even though it was a clamshell, I called it a seashell in part because I was wowed by the metropolis of, of Chicago, but also because I was sort of dreaming of points beyond. Um, I, I sort of was hoping that someday I would see an ocean in person. What do you, Take us to that moment where you pick up this clamshell and decide to take it home and, and talk to us about what you did with it and what, this, what it began. 
Well, it's really interesting. The meaning of that seashell or that clamshell changed over time. I think at the time I was just excited to find anything that seemed like the natural world. I was probably in Lincoln Park in Chicago, uh, and I and I tucked it away into my day pack and I displayed it proudly in my room. And I really used it as an object to dream of points beyond. Um, which is funny because I've been a travel writer for a long time now, and I've seen plenty of oceans. Interestingly, and this is something that I meditate on in the book, there was a point at which I lost track of that seashell that, or that clamshell that meant so much to me when I was young. I think because I went to college in Oregon, I lived in Asia for a while, and the idea of dreaming about an ocean became a reality, and that object no longer served the present. And of course, now it's sort of sad that I lost track of that seashell because it reminds me of who I was when I was seven. And I think it helps me appreciate the dreams that I had when I was young that have come true in in so many ways. So that's just one example of a souvenir that had very important meaning at one time, and its meaning has changed over time to the point where it became something that I could uh, cast aside at a certain point in my life. Right. I mean, more more recently, like when you started this book, you had been collecting, sort of subconsciously collecting masks in Asia. Yeah, that's another interesting story. Uh, and some of the social scientists who study tourism say that tourists just like masks. Cultures who, who don't have mask performances in their dance drama, they carve masks because tourists ask after, ma- after masks, especially in, in continents like Africa, where there's so many co- cultures mixing together that uh, you know, one tribe might make masks because they're jealous that the tribe, you know, one valley over is selling a lot of masks. In my situation, I, as I was in my earliest travels through Asia, I, every country I went to, I would buy a dance drama mask for my collection. And after about six countries, when I got to Mongolia, I realized I didn't know why I was doing it because I wasn't going to dance dramas. I was just buying these sort of exotic seeming masks in gift shops. And what I realized is that my friend had a mask collection. And when I was dreaming of traveling across Asia, I would look at those masks and sort of dream my way into that further trip. And after a certain point of Asia travel experience, I didn't really need those masks to certify myself as a traveler. I was having more organic experiences. And so now when I have those masks, which I still keep in on the wall of my office in Kansas. Uh, I don't just think of Asia, but I think of myself as that excited newbie traveler on the continent of Asia, buying masks for reasons he doesn't completely understand. You know, the relationship between souvenirs and the dreams that send you on journeys in the first place seems interesting to me. Like, it seems like you start with a dream and you come home with a souvenir. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking to a high school teacher who brought back a Dia de los Muertos uh, mask um, from Mexico, and he put it in his classroom. And he said it really sparked his students' interest. And I think it's interesting that as wannabe travelers, oftentimes we're inspired not just by the idea of other places, but by these concrete physical objects of other places. I mean, you have National Geographic famously and in, in, makes people dream of other places. But I think when when you're young and you see these objects that have been brought home by your elders, or you visit a friend's house and, and see the uncle who served in the military and, and brought back this you know, really curious carving from another continent, that really makes the idea of other places seem real. And even in the 21st century, when we get so many in, uh, images from places like Instagram, there's something to be said for holding an object from a faraway place and really using it as a way of dreaming yourself into that place. I keep using that word dreaming, but it, it's a recurring thing as I've explored the phenomenology of souvenirs is that it's really used as an object 
that's bigger than its singular self. Yeah, you write some about the word souvenir and the fact that it's a French verb, actually. Like, we use it as a noun, a thing, but the French verb to remember, it literally means to come back to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it, it, that sort of made its way into English about the time that Jefferson and Adams were carving chips off of Shakespeare's chair, around the time of, you know, when the Industrial Revolution was was sparking up uh, and souvenirs became a really formalized ritual in, in, the, in the tourist industry. But if you go to cemeteries like Père Lachaise in, in France, you'll actually see the word souvenir on tombstones because it's about people go to remember their, their relatives. Um, and so it's only it, in English that it has a more singular uh, purpose as these objects that we collect that are sort of uh, an agent of memory. And uh, a given object will serve memory in different ways over the course of a, of a given lifetime. You know, when you mentioned photographs, that is such a big part of how most people do remember travels and remember just important experiences. But I've read about the science of how remembering something through a photograph works, that when you look at this photograph again and again, the path you take back to that memory kind of gets set in stone and it becomes hard to remember things about the experience outside the photograph. Like the photograph becomes a stand-in for the experience. And I wonder if it is different when you're looking at a less literal thing, like a clamshell. Yeah, well, it's more associative. And I forget, Annie Dillard or, or maybe Susan Sontag wrote really interestingly about how we're looking at the photograph, but we're also remembering the last time we remembered the photograph, right? And it has... A photograph has a direct one-to-one relationship with what is being viewed, whereas a snow globe or a wood chip or a clamshell picked up from the shores of Lake Michigan, it has a different kind of energy that you can't just show it to somebody and say, look, this is what I saw. It has a personalized meaning. And in the book, I talk about how when Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, died, his estate found that he had saved some wrenches and waist tethers from his moon mission that I think to him told a story that was completely different than all the millions of words that have been written about the moon mission. And so I think that's really something about the power of, of souvenirs to call forth these associative memories that even a photograph can't stand in for. So in an age of mass-produced souvenirs, how, how is that? Is that the same as carving off your own wood chip or bringing back your wrench? I mean, you write about the gazillions of Eiffel Tower souvenirs that a person can pick up in Paris, for example. Is that the same as your wood chip carving? It, it is and it isn't, you know, and it, and it created this authenticity discussion. I just, I. I dedicate an entire chapter to the idea of authenticity is like, is this little trinket that was made in China that depicts a French landmark, is that an authentic representation of experience? And actually, you know, those aristocratic travelers who carved off uh, wood chips from Shakespeare's chair were really irritated by the middle class travelers who came in. One is that there were so many of them that they would destroy those chairs. And two is that they really created a market in trinkets, whereas an aristocratic traveler through his education might buy fine crystal or tapestry that was informed by his education in a certain place like Milan, uh, a middle-class traveler didn't care. They would, they would take a trinket, trinket that was engraved with the word Milan, and this still happens. But I think in my investigation of souvenirs, I realized that the authenticity that travelers seek really isn't about cultural authenticity, but about a sense of authenticity in oneself, about being away from home. 
And oftentimes, it's the it's the first time travelers, it's the early um, explorers who buy the trinkets. But in a way, the first time we vis- we visit a place like Milan has an emotional power that might be stronger than our more sophisticated self that visits a place like Milan for the tenth time. So as much as we might make fun of the little trinkety, uh, kitschy type souvenirs, uh, snow globes and keychains and such. Um, in a way, it doesn't matter because it's all about the meaning it conveys for the person who went there. And when you think about going to a place like Paris for a person who's been there for the first time, I think it reminds you of the miracle of crossing an ocean and seeing a place that you've dreamt about your whole life. So in a way, for as much as we might look down our nose at some of the cheaper type souvenirs, it doesn't really matter what purpose they serve as a social status because it's all a very internal and personalized thing. You know, I mean... It's interesting to me to think about how all of the memories of your travels come back to you in Kansas, but also when you talk about authenticity and, you know, I don't know, being away, far away from home, it sounds almost like buying souvenirs and trying to find an authentic souvenir is really about trying to make sure you haven't lost who you are, that you're still a real person and not just lost in the identity of tourist. You know what I mean? Is that, as a travel writer, I mean, do you feel like you need to be reminded that you are still the you from Kansas? Sometimes, yeah. You know, like if I if I buy or even just pick up a souvenir that I know where it's going to be in my house, you know, sort of part of this object narrative I have back home, it's sort of a connection to the place I've left behind. Um, and a lot of people who've researched souvenirs and the people who buy them, the ritual of shopping for souvenirs or looking for souvenirs is sort of a comfort ritual in a place that you don't completely understand. You can find a containable part of it to hold to yourself. And in a place that you might only be for a few days that has so many more things than you could possibly remember, taking one little part of it, even if it's just a cheap keychain or um, you know an, an empty wine bottle from a, from a fun experience you had, then that's a way of keeping... Um, and honoring what is, in essence, an ephemeral experience. But for all of your acceptance and even sort of honoring of souvenirs, you do have an entire chapter on souvenirs and human suffering. Yeah, I wanted to to acknowledge that because there's sort of a lightheartedness to travel souvenirs, but... Um, Over the course of many centuries of warfare and also some very ugly chapters in American history involving lynching, um, cutting off bodily souvenirs, scalps, fingers, um, which are not meant to be enshrined and kept, but sort of speak to the psychopathy of a lynching event or a war battle, um, it really creates a complicated situation. And it's something I explore in that chapter. Like if you go to a place like Auschwitz, what do you bring back as a souvenir? Um, and the, that the gift shops in Auschwitz have been wrestling with that. Actually, um, the gift shop at the 9-11 Memorial in New York has wrestled with that, is that how do you honor something that's very solemn at the same time, um, you know, giving some the visitors a tangible thing to remember it with. And I also bring up um, well, Mount Vernon. I, I'm curious why, why you think that places like that do have gift shops. I mean, if the experience is so solemn, maybe the place itself is the memory. Well, you would think so, but a refrain I heard often again and again is that the reason 
souvenirs are offered or the reason a certain type of souvenir is offered is because that's what people want. And, you know, when Auschwitz stopped selling souvenirs, people started stealing parts of Auschwitz. They started taking bits of barbed wire and brick. And so it became a very complicated thing where they're actively trying not to disturb the solemn atmosphere of the place. But people somehow weren't happy with just a memory of this solemn place. They wanted something to make the sorrow of this place very, very strong. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I explore. Also, the idea that men uh, who are in battle will go to great lengths to bring back little mementos of war, often risking their lives. Um, and it's often, an analyst said it, as a way of reminding themselves that they will once again have this normal domestic life. So it's a really complicated thing. It could almost be its own book. Uh, but I wanted to acknowledge that amid the more frivolous and whis- um, whimsical souvenirs that there are some very, very serious souvenir rituals out there. You know, it's interesting that the more you talk about this, the we I think I've always had this idea of souvenirs as a commercially driven thing, but it sounds like it is just a deep human impulse. It is, and it goes back to, to childhood when we sort of identify the world by picking things up and holding them in front of our face or even showing them to to older people. And and so I think... And Show I don't and think tell. I, Show and tell, yeah. And I don't think I fully appreciated that until I went through my house and realized how many souvenirs I had that I don't even think of as souvenirs. They're just sort of ways of organizing um, the world and my and my life's journeys through it. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including where to find my 2018 book, Souvenir, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.